What is the weirdest dream you've ever had? I'm kind of an insomniac, and so many nights are just kind of dream broken up by dream by broken up dream by broken up dream. And so when you have one of those lives where you're having dream after dream after dream, you get the good dreams, you get the bad dreams, and you get all sorts of things in between. Sometimes I have, you know, bad dreams where uh, you're, you're falling. You may have had one of those where you fall, and then right as you hit the ground, you kind of feel like you, you hit your bed, and you wake up, and you're covered in cold sweat, and you're like, oh my, you know, and you're panicked because you thought you were falling. One of the more popular dreams that I've had, you may have had this too, uh, is one where your teeth fall out in the middle of your dream. It's absolutely horrific. It's the second most popular dream there is. So the dream experts still haven't been able to figure out what that is about, but it definitely is classified as a bad dream. You have good dreams, and those are the ones that I highly prefer. Those are the ones where you're, you get upset if somebody interrupts them, if your kids come in and wake you up, or the guy next door decides he's going to mow his lawn at a very early hour. You were finding yourself going, okay, who did this? And you get upset with somebody because you were having the time of your life. You were on the beach at the Four Seasons in Bali in a hammock and relaxing and having a great time until your toddler came up and and put their snotty hand on your face, or you were sitting there enjoying a, a massage by the beach in a, in, a, in, a, in a beautiful day or something like that. Whenever those kinds of things happen and you get interrupted, you're just like, oh man, I love, I love good dreams. Maybe you win the lottery and you finally got your chance to go tell your boss exactly what you thought of him, and then somebody interrupts it. Well, I prefer those kinds of dreams. The third category of dream, not a bad dream, not a good dream, is kind of one of those dreams that makes you go, there was something significant in that dream. I don't know what it is. I might not be able to put my finger on it, but there was something significant in that dream. Sometimes maybe you've had kind of what some people call like a deja vu experience. You find yourself going, hey, I've dreamed this. I know what's going to happen next, and then it actually happens. Or maybe uh, some people would classify it as a, as, a, as a vision or something like that where you're, you, you, you wake up afterwards and you're like, I don't know what that was. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad. I just kind of got the sense that there, there might be some meaning in this particular thing. These are the dreams that we sense have some sort of meaning, but we may or may not know what it exactly is. So that's the kind of dream that Peter has in Acts chapter 10. He goes up on the roof to pray, and he has what the scriptures call a vision. Picture maybe like a daydream or something like that, in which a large sheet is lowered from heaven, and on that sheet is everything that you can think of that might ruin a good Jewish boy's appetite. Camels, badgers, buzzards, bats, crocodiles, lizards, and even a pig. Everything that you can think of that was on the do not eat list that was given uh, to every good God-fearing Jewish boy in Leviticus chapter 11. It would be like for me if a sheet had fallen from the heavens and on that sheet was uh, all of the things that I don't like at all in this world to eat. Uh, you had sushi, you had nearly every vegetable that, that God ever created would be on that particular sheet. Now, while I may think that those things are gross, they don't really, they don't really offend me. They're not something that I would look at. I mean, there are plenty of mostly decent people that like some of those things. I don't. What Peter has is something, he has a sheet of stuff that he doesn't not want to eat it because it doesn't taste good. He doesn't want to eat this stuff because he would find it defiling. It would make him unclean. So I might think that vegetables are gross or sushi is gross, but I don't find them immoral or offensive. But on the sheet that Peter saw were all of these things that he found just completely offensive to his spirituality, things that God had said 
in the book of Leviticus particularly were unclean. Now, I wish that I could understand how important dietary laws were to the people of Israel. We don't really have anything like that here in America. The only potential analogy I can think of is that maybe just as a Christian, I show up on a Sunday morning and it comes time for communion, and when normally bread and wine or bread and grape juice would, would come by, instead somebody passes around pork chops and, and scotch or something. And you find yourself going, no, 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 that's not what we're, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not eating that. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that, that sense of offense that somebody would swap out something sacred for something uh, that might be defiling in the eyes of some is something that's going on. You can't just look at it and say, oh, come on, if food is food. Food isn't food in certain ways, right? We believe God told us to do it in another way. We think that communion is something you celebrate the way that Jesus did it with bread and wine, uh, it, not pork chops and scotch. We've been doing it with bread and, you know, Welch's grape juice since 1869 when Mr. Welch invented the, the holy grape juice or something. We wouldn't be who we are if we used pork chops and scotch because Jesus used bread and wine at the Last Supper, not that stuff. So if that doesn't help you understand the dietary issue, then just imagine that anything for you that is the dividing line between Christians and other people, anything that divides you from other people as a Christian, that one thing that makes you who you are, that non-negotiable, that thing you can't let slide and still be God's people. When you figured out what that is, okay, then prepare to let it go, like Peter had to. As Peter looks at the sheet, he hears a voice say, rise, kill, and eat. Now, you or I may have thought that it was the devil talking, okay? But Peter recognizes it as the voice of God, and his response is, there's no way I'm going to eat that stuff. Now, I want you to pause and just realize he recognizes it's the voice of God telling him to eat, but he refuses the voice of God telling him to eat that stuff. No way, no how, I can never do anything that defiling, okay, Peter? fancies himself as a good law-abiding Jew, Jewish Christian, I should say. He's never eaten anything unclean. And God then responds to him. He says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. I'm going to say that again. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then that sequence happens three times. The sheet comes down, full of offensive stuff. Peter's told, rise, kill, eat. Peter says, no way, I can't do that. God declares it clean, and then the sheet goes back up into heaven. Just then, there's a knock at the door, downstairs. Three men come, and a Gentile, uh, that represent a Gentile man, meaning a non-Jewish man, by the name of Cornelius, are downstairs. So Peter's still up on the roof. They come downstairs to his place. They're downstairs, and they say that their boss, Cornelius, had a vision, and in that, he was told to go look for a guy named Peter. So Peter hears the Spirit at this moment say, go with them. I have sent them. So when Peter sees them, he asks them what they want, and they say that their boss, a centurion by the name of Cornelius, has been having dreams too, and that he was told to send for a man named Peter. So Peter goes with them. When he walks through the door, there's Cornelius there with all of his family and friends, and he bows down and begins to worship Peter because he doesn't know any better. Peter immediately tells him to get up. He says, don't, don't do that. I'm only a man just like you are. And so then they swap dreams. 
Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. The first little dream sequence when they're sharing their dreams teaches us a very, very important lesson I want you to really let sink in. God does not show favoritism. Okay, God does not show favoritism. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35 say this. It says, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, I'm sure nobody was more surprised to hear those words come out of his mouth than Peter was. Peter had grown up his entire life thinking that God, in fact, very much showed favoritism. He preferred Jews to Gentiles and that the Israelites were his chosen people. And that from the time of the promise to Abraham, all the way until that present moment, he had chose Israel and Israel alone to be his chosen people. Now, he's not by himself there, and it's not a crazy thought. It's not that the Old Testament doesn't share anything about that or that Peter just made it up. Virtually everybody around Peter at the time thought the exact same way. Now, they had learned, the Christian Jews, the Jewish Christians, I should say, more properly, and Jewish Christians had learned how to get along with Gentiles. They were kind of operating under peaceful coexistence or whatever, but mo and most Jews gave Gentiles the benefit of the doubt and lived in harmony with them, but they still wouldn't eat with them. And this becomes a very, very big deal. Nothing personal, maybe. It's just that I'm not going to risk getting some pork with the beans, so to speak. Not going to do that. Justice, if you've ever seen the Statue of Justice outside the Supreme Court. It's Lady Justice, and she's standing there, and she's got a blindfold on. Because justice is blind to the actions of men, or not because she's blind to the actions of men, but rather because all are equal in the eyes of justice. And by putting that blindfold on, justice can't see who they are, what race they are, what gender they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a beautiful concept, and it's similar to what's being said here, that God doesn't show favoritism, that when he looks down on people, there, there is nobody that you ever look into the eyes of, or I look into the eyes of, that are not precious and loved in the sight of God. And that he loves each and every person that he's created. Every single person that he knit together in the womb of their mother. I wonder if we might be better Christians if we were blindfolded. If we were totally incapable of seeing people's externals. I wonder how we would treat them. Now what Peter says about God in that little passage is so powerful that he shows no favoritism. He's saying there is no first class and coach in the kingdom of God, that God has showered his grace upon all creation, all people. No first class, no coach. Now, if you're not familiar with the difference between first class and coach, uh, I don't know what to tell you. First class is lovely. I, I got on a first class flight by accident once fairly recently, and I ended up in this wonderful, large, spacious cabin with all this space, and the flight attendants were kind, almost uh, pleasant. And there they are, and they're asking me if they can do anything else for me, and I get this wonderful meal, and I get all these movies to watch. And in fact, the chair I was sitting in, I kid you not, was a massage chair. Now, where you're in coach, the massage you get is the toddler behind you kicking your chair. This kind of chair was different. This kind of chair was an actual massage chair, the kind that makes you not want to get off the plane after it has landed. After six hours, this was a flight from New York to San Diego, a long flight, getting the little, the little fingers of heaven into your back, making you relaxed and happy on your way home. First class, in the back you got coach. 
They throw you a bag of pretzels uh, three hours into the flight. Uh, they begrudgingly get you your drink. Again, you get the extra special massage from the guy behind you, and you are wedged in there sometimes between two people that are much larger than you, and, and you feel as though your entire world is, is closing in on you for that period of time. Okay, in the Christian sphere, that treatment, the way that you, you can get treated by people, first class, coach, that isn't something that should take place in the kingdom of God. That the church of all the places that are out there is a place where we all understand that but for the grace of God, none of us would be able to stand in the presence of God for any reason and that we all fall on the same grace and it is by the same name, that name being Jesus and Jesus alone, that we are all saved. So what happens here is an enormous moment in the history of Christianity. It's when God begins to fulfill what was said in Acts chapter 1 and if Peter had heard what was said in Acts chapter 1 and his own sermon in Acts chapter 2, rather than just thinking maybe legislatively or legalistically about Leviticus chapter 11, if he had continued to listen to the voice of God, he might have seen this moment coming, that God had come, Jesus had come to this world to share the grace of God across the entire globe, not just with Jews, but with Gentiles as well. So here is something that we all need to let just wash over us. In the kingdom of God, there's no first class, there's no coach, there is no favoritism in the kingdom of God. And that is the fundamental stream of truth that runs through this entire story in Acts chapter 10 and 11. But in order for us to drink from it, we're going to have to open our minds up to God working a little bit differently than he has in the past. So in Acts chapter 10, if you look at verses 44 and 45, the text says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. So before we go to the next passage, get what just happened there. The Holy Spirit came on everybody who heard his message, including the Gentiles that were there. And it says that those, the Israelite guys that were there in their midst, the Bible refers to them as the circumcised believers who'd come with Peter, they were astonished at what they saw because the Holy Spirit had clearly been poured out on the Gentiles as well. Then if you turn over a page or so, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, says this, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now, let's pause for just a moment. Not everybody's thrilled with this new arrangement. Because when you go from being the favorite to not being the favorite anymore, that's a very disillusioning experience. It's one that most of us don't particularly enjoy. And it wasn't any different here. Going from first class into coach with everybody else, or having everybody in coach sent to first class doesn't feel particularly good in the kingdom of God to those who had enjoyed that favored status. And it's based pretty much on the fact that Peter says, hey, I had a vision from God. He told me to meet this guy named Cornelius. And when we met, it was pretty clear that the power of the Holy Spirit had fallen on him, even as a Gentile. And so I welcomed him because it was clear that from the voice of God that we were supposed to do this. Okay, so they're highly critical of Peter when he comes back. It is hard. It's not easy to believe anybody when they say, okay, I had a vision and I want to change something that maybe seems to us quite clear in Scripture. 
Okay, so lest I be misunderstood, I'm not suggesting that everybody who has a vision of anything or thinks they have a vision of anything has the right to change the Bible, if you will. It's not that. It's understanding that Scripture itself, by its very nature, doesn't allow for the caging of God and how he works in the world. That Scripture, by its nature, is the self-revelation of God. So when we, I read the Bible and you read the Bible... What we are seeing is the character, the nature, and the wishes, and the will of God being revealed to us so that we can then take that and what it meant for them at that time and bring it forward into the world that we're living in. This story does question our beliefs about how God works in the world because Peter here discerns and follows the Holy Spirit's activity even when in a certain way of reading the Bible, I'll put it that way, he doesn't have scripture to authorize his experience. I mean, if I had been alive at the time and Peter had come and told me this, I would have been right at the front of the line of the eye rollers. I probably would have been the first guy. If they had an email back then, I would have emailed him something and given him my mind on that matter. And I would have been absolutely dead wrong. In Romans, the Apostle Paul reminds us, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Peter had missed is that that something new was going on. And that was initiated through the resurrection of Jesus and then forward on this side of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit is working out the agenda of God in the world. And that is to bring the, the gospel of Jesus and new creation throughout the entire globe, not just to those that God had initially called. That God's point in all of this was to save everyone, not just them. And so... That reminder from Paul, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's another way of putting what God tells Peter in the Cornelius story together when he says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. And neither should we, sister or brother, call unclean something that God has made clean. The Bible is not, by its nature, it is not God's cage. It is his self-revelation, and it reveals to us here that he will be who he will be. We read it so we know how God has moved and in order to interpret and discern how he moves today. He isn't caged within the pages of the Bible. He is illuminated. He is presented powerfully there, but he doesn't stop working when the final pages of Scripture are written. Scripture is there to show us how he worked and how he plans to work in the future. And if Peter had been listening for that, listening to Acts chapter 1, listening to Acts chapter 2, his own sermon, uh, then he might have seen this entire situation differently, as would all of his critics who still resisted what God was trying to do in the world. So I've stopped trying to tell God where he should and he shouldn't work. I've come to ask Peter's question from chapter 11 when he has to explain then to his critics, this is what he does in Acts eleven fifteen to 18. He says, as I began to speak, he's telling them what just happened. He's trying to help his critics understand what just took place. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as, they had come on, as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. So here he's saying, I remember now from Scripture that God said this moment was coming. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter adds, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Over the years, 
I've learned that God often likes to work where I would not expect him to be working. Among the tax collectors and the sinners, among Californians. I may choose to acknowledge it or not, but whether I acknowledge it or not, that doesn't stop it. I may choose to believe that I or my church or whoever is God's favorite, but that doesn't make it so. And frankly, that kind of bothers me. I would prefer to be God's favorite, wouldn't you? If I could be God's favorite, that might be a wonderful thing. But God says it ain't so, that he will not be caged in that way, and that he is going about working all around the globe in bars and shelters and churches and office buildings. And that doesn't render us less important, per se, or irrelevant any more than it rendered Peter irrelevant in the life of Cornelius. The church remains God's apostle to the world. And it's our job to go where he stands, to discern his vision, to pursue partnership with God in whatever it is that he's doing in this world, instead of embracing a mirage that pictures ourselves as the sum total of God's work in the world. God is at work all over the place, even as I speak, everywhere, doing his work. And he invites us to be a part of that. This is something to rejoice in, not to resent I mean, isn't it wonderful to think that even if every church in America shut its doors tomorrow, the gospel would continue to flourish abroad? That even if every church in the world shut its doors of its facilities, that the gospel would still continue to do its work in the world as it's doing at this very moment. Because every church in America has shut its doors. Maybe not permanently, but for right now. And yet, I'm sure you can join me in reciting some of the stories that you've seen of God continuing to work in the world, in hospitals, in grocery stores, on the street, online, over the phone, on Zoom. And who would have thought everybody and their mother would be familiar with Zoom and on Zoom at this point in life, right? But God is working in all sorts of mysterious ways. And this story between Peter and Cornelius is yet another example. Uh, It's a foundational example of how this works. To put it in the words of William Willimon, he says, faith when it comes down to it, is often our breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God, to keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where on earth is God going now? So we look to scripture and we look to Jesus and we look to the direction of the Holy Spirit to guide us as we interpret. Now there's one last thing I'd like to point out in here and I think it's particularly poignant and important for the world we're living in today. And that's this, that even good people need Jesus. Even good people need God. In our time, it's really common for people to say, increasingly even some Christians, to say that if a person does lots of good things, if a person, uh, you know, throws a few nickels this way or they serve in a soup kitchen here and there and they're just kind of an overall good person, that that's enough, that they're justified in the eyes of God. However, one of the things that's striking about Cornelius is that he is still in need of something. I mean, by our standards, he's a very, very good person. I mean, he does a lot of really good things. Here's what the Bible says about him. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 2. It says, he, he being Cornelius, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Well, what more could he do? What's the matter with that? Nothing's the matter with that. It's just that he's missing the thing you must have. He's missing the only essential. That's Jesus himself. I mean, you can't do much better than that. I mean, that's a pretty good description. If the Bible spoke of me that way, I'd be pretty flattered. 
He doesn't sound like a guy who needs to be converted. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a really good person, as we put it these days. He sounds like many of our friends. They're not serial killers or thieves or whatever. I mean, some of them might be, but most of them aren't. And for them, we have a clear answer, right? If they're a serial killer or a thief or whatever, maybe we go, yes, they clearly need Jesus. But what about the person who seems to have everything? What about that good person? Do they still need Jesus? Scripture says yes, beyond question. Whatever the case, we should never make the mistake of thinking that good people don't need Jesus. The question to, if the question is who needs Jesus, the answer is anyone who doesn't have him. Christianity isn't just for the down and the out and the dangerous. It's for everybody. It's for the Corneliuses, the Cornelii, if you will. Not just for the people who are real, whose lives have gone completely off the rails. It's for everybody. We don't come to Jesus because our lives are completely in the dumps and take him like some sort of vitamin supplement to make us better. We do it because we understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is Christ only. It's not goodness that we need. Now, once Christ comes into our lives and begins to take over, yes, we become gooder people, if you will. But goodness does not a Christian make. Christ does a Christian make. There's a, uh, a phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. That sounds like a big, fancy, ugly theological word. It kind of is. But it's basically a, a sequence of beliefs that some authors about uh, 12 years ago wrote a book uh, defining what they thought the dominant spiritual view of teens were. So that means people that are now about 30. Okay. Uh, here are the five things that they pointed out. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Does any of this sound familiar? Good people go to heaven when they die. And so that's kind of the canon of dominant thought out there. That's what passes as faith for a lot of people. But Christianity preaches what Cornelius needs to hear. Cornelius was all of those things. He was, he was a great guy. He was devout. He was God-fearing, it says in the text. He believed all those things, but God sent Peter to him not because Cornelius' life wasn't admirable, but because it was incomplete. He was still missing what he needed which was Jesus. Peter's sermon is a basic telling of the story of Jesus. He tells how God sent Jesus to redeem the world from sin, and he reissues our call. Acts 10, 42 to 43. It says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead, and that all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Only Jesus is living of the dead, and it's through him that people receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And so that's the invitation. That's the invitation to me and to you and to those who are far off. And so if you're a Christian, 
understand that what makes you a Christian is not just that you're a, a pretty decent person all the way around. It's that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. And if you have yet to make Jesus Lord of your life, then let me invite you to do so this morning. You can send us an email. You can call us. Uh, you can put something in the chat stream. But don't let this moment pass. If you're out there and you still feel like something's missing, even though you try to live the best life you know how, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably because there is. Because it's Jesus that's missing. And so I invite you this morning to make him Lord of your life. In Acts 10.48, Cornelius is baptized. Peter commands it to be so. And so if that's where you are this morning and you'd like to make Jesus Lord and Savior, if you'd like to be baptized, then please, I invite you to let us know. This morning, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and do what we call communion. And we're going to do it with unleavened bread, which symbolizes the body of Jesus, and with the cup, which in it is usually some sort of fruit of the vine, wine or grape juice, that symbolizes his body that was shed for you. The good people, too, and the bad people, and the horrible people, and the ugly people, and the fat people, and the thin people, that all of that. It's kind of irrelevant in the sight of God. That the gospel is blind in that sense. That it's for everyone. And so this morning, let me pray for us and we'll take communion together as we close our service this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup, now we remember Jesus. We remember the one that we are to preach. The one that we are to testify to. That he is the one that God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And that all the prophets testify about him and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. May that be the word that we preach today, Father. We thank you for sending Jesus on our behalf. All us bad people, all us good people, Father. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus and how it changes our lives and our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.